Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I got an email, like I do occasionally, from, from a 15-year-old who wanted to be a rock writer, which it all strikes me as absolutely bizarre. I think a lot of people writing to people saying, I'd like to be a blacksmith or whatever, <laughs> you know, in, in the year 2015. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote as politely as I possibly could back to him and said, um, well, I can't help you with the job, but, you know... Why don't, you, why don't you take your favourite rock read and apply to them for a job, thinking he won't have a favourite rock read? And sure enough, I didn't hear back from him, you know, because he... He didn't need it. He didn't need it no. at all, you know. But, but rock critic is one of those kind of archetypes that kind of hangs on in movies and, you know, people talk about them. Right. And this gentleman has got a reasonable claim to be the first one ever. A reasonable claim. And I'm sure he'll tell us how, what that claim is based on. Mm-hmm. Would you please welcome Richard Goldstein? So, so there's Richard's book, another little piece of my heart, My Life, A Rock and Revolution in the 1960s. I, I'm going to take you back, Richard. Richard lives in Paris nowadays, is that No, fair? no, no, I live in Greenwich oh. Village in New York. Oh, oh, I visit there. Paris. Oh, I see. You came yeah. nips over from Paris for this. I came okay, over, so right. fine. Well, we're, we're going to go back to New York okay, to, good. to start this. Um, we're going to... Rather corny old postcard of the Bronx. So you, you were... You were born in the Bronx, and I'm going to put the same right. question to you that we put to Norman. Mm-hmm. Give us an idea of your family home at the time, and what means of playing music there was in that home. Right. Um, I live in a housing project. You call it council housing? Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, which was perfectly okay with me as a kid. Um, and um, I, had a, uh, I had a transistor radio. Okay, It was a, about the size of a toaster. I guess it had batteries and an antenna that twirled around, and it gave you little shocks. <laughs> and you listened to it, and you held it to your ear, and that's what I... I still remember the color. I was deeply attached to it, and I sang doo-wop on the streets with the Italian kids in the project. So Jews were not allowed into the gang system, but we could sing with them, and so we sang together, and, and that was my, you know, my first real introduction to 
rock and roll and masculinity was singing doo-wop. Uh, what, what sort of songs? Um, what you, you know, anything that, made, that we could do that made us sound black. Um, so, you know, the, the cliché idea of those, of those days is that people would find a, a place that echoed or a tunnel mm, or something like no. that. No? You just sing anyway. Just the streets, you know. We would be stealing hubcaps from cars and putting them on our belts, and they would be on the street. So, yeah, it would, could be anywhere. It could be under in a store or, you know, under an awning or in the project. There were benches in front of the houses where people hung out at night, and we sang doo up there. It could be anywhere, anywhere at all. So that was your first kind of musical passion, was it? You know, I mean, yeah, I, I listened to classical music, too, as a kid. But I, I, and I read a lot, and that was the other passion I had, was reading literature. Right, so you were, you were bookish. You I were was, yeah. what we would call here a swat. I was an introvert, a nerd. A nerd. A terri- They've got new words all the time. There's nerd, a terrific dork, moment you're talking about nerd. being the, the first really educated member of your family, uh, yes. your Jewish family. The first right. one who knew the difference between Hegel and a bagel. That's correct. That, was really, really good. that is correct. That is completely correct. I, mean, I went to the City University of New York, which was in those days a free college education, very unusual in America. And, uh, you know, it's a, a red brick university. It's, I teach there now, so it still exists. Teaches the children of immigrants. Uh, gives them a very good education. And, uh, you know, yeah, I had a deep passion for rock and roll and James Joyce at the same time. Right. So I was the only kid in the project with this combination of Ulysses <laughs> and Little Richard. That's right. that's, seriously, truly. No, seriously, because that's, that's yeah. going to turn out to be a new archetype, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I don't know about that. I know loads of people. I know loads of people go to university to do literature, and then what they really want to write about is pop music. Yeah. Yeah. They like to apply yeah. the, the, thing, the thing that, uh, that well, they're yes. interested in. So, but you spend a lot of your time, as right. you're getting older, right. in when I, Greenwich Village. So, the, I don't know, yeah. this is the early 60s or something like yeah. that, probably. Yeah, this is what... Give us an idea of Greenwich Village in those... Well, I mean, there were a lot of... You know, there, were, there was an art scene there and a jazz scene and all the rest. There were beatniks still. But for this scene over here is the teeny bopper scene, as we called them. And this is kids from the outer boroughs of New York. We call them bridge and tunnel people. And uh, you would just, it would be an hour on the subway to get there, the, the underground, and uh, you would hang out, and all you did was hang out. You didn't know anything about art or zen or any of the Greenwich Village specialties. And I would keep a pair of sandals in a paper bag because I couldn't wear them in the project. I would get my feet stepped on. <laughs> so I would, I would, you know, take off my sneakers, my kids, and put on the sandals, and I'd be in the village. And that was... That was honestly, truly my, my paradise, my Jerusalem. And this is where I saw Bob Dylan, maybe in the Café Wa over there, or maybe at Gertie's Folk City, uh, long before he was, well, not too long, but before he was famous. He was just something that my friends and I loved, you know. What kind of material was he playing around then? You know, he was doing his folk stuff, pre-blown in the wind. You know, girl from the North Country. I mean, it would be, you know, uh, you know everybody was trying to sound Appalachian, in, in the folk scene, not black, but Appalachian. So there were all these kids who sounded like they were from Kentucky who were from Brooklyn. <laughs> they were suburban yeah. kids, weren't they? No, no, no. Well, okay, not... Urban, yeah, urban, okay. lower yeah, class. Yeah. These, this is the post-war education boom when the, they were the first members of their family to get a college education. And this is a very important uh, thing in America in the 50s and 60s is educating poor people for the first time so 
We had expectations of ourselves that we were entitled to be creative. Our parents wanted us, however, to be rich. Well, how do you reconcile this? You become a beatnik. It's upwardly mobile, but not successful. So, yeah, working for Village Voice is probably not going to be the no, fast no. ticket to a lot of money. So, no, I, no. I'm interested in this because yeah. uh, the, 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 there's a scene in the, the recent Cohen Brothers film, yes. the, Inside, the, uh, Lewin Inside Lewin Davis, Davis yeah, yeah. Where, which works on the basis that yeah. you've heard all these ordinary folkies, yeah. and suddenly at the end, there is the extraordinary sound of Bob Dylan. Right. Right. Did he, you know, you had the rare privilege of seeing Bob Dylan before you knew he was Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? No, I mean Did I, he strike you mm. as that much better than anybody else? Um, he was distinctive. There's no doubt about it. I went to his 1961 debut concert at Carnegie Hall. I still have the program for it, so I saved it for 50 years. Um, and he was kind of an idol of our little group, but we never thought that he would be a, some kind of sensation. He was just the sort of cult figure for us, somebody who represented also just our political ideals, civil rights, peace, you know, all of this lefty stuff that we believed very... These were the, a lot of them, not me, but a lot of the, my friends were the children of communists. And you can imagine by, through the 1950s that they were basically hermetic and terrified. And so coming out and seeing a music that actually dared to be leftist in the early 60s. This was a tremendous thing. It was, it was a really a break with McCarthyism. And Dylan represented that, among many other things, to us. And, you know, he was a terrific uh, sort of ambient... And, in fact, met through meeting Susie Rotolo, in fact, wasn't it? Who yes. Who was also that, that's parents the, for yes, Friends of exactly. Communists. But many, many of these people were the children of communists. Yeah. It's important to say that. My, my parents thought communism was upwardly mobile. <laughs> because they figured that these people would all become doctors. And, and so they loved the idea that I was hanging out with communists. So I, I think in the book it says, my mother used to call me my little communist. Meaning, you know, wow, you're going to be successful. You're a communist. So that is actually how it was. So, so you got Greenwich Village and Bob Dylan and the folky thing. And right. then into that, you, right. you get the arrival of the Beatles yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Give, us, give us a kind of perspective of what it was like at the time right. for America and well, why America took to them so much. No, I mean, I, I don't know if I can speak about America in general. No, okay. I can say that, for me, they represented complete potential. They were secretly working class, if neat. They were, uh, you know, they were urbane. They, were, they had arty pretensions. From the very start, there were unusual elements in their music. And I wrote a piece in 1962 for my college paper, predicting that they would usher in the second jazz age. So that's... that's and in a way, and they did. In a certain way, they did. All the values of the 1920s, aside from the music, I think the Beatles did usher in this enormous outpouring of, of creative potential. Yeah, but a, yeah, lot of, yeah. a, a lot of it was... Uh, you know, I think we touched on this with, with Norman. A lot of it was right. their personalities... As well as the music? Yeah, I mean, I think it was the hidden currents under the conventional stuff. So the rock and roll was looked like it was conventional, but then there'd be this strange harmonic twist, or there'd be something going on in the background that wasn't supposed to be there. You know, it, it was it was slick but not. And under the surface, you could see intellect working. And that's what I thought anyway. So I loved the Beatles, of course, and I missed their Shea Stadium concert, but I wrote about them two years before then. I just was no, you know, I wasn't a professional when they were there. So they, to me, they, they represented my own future. So, you, so yeah. you took your kind of 
literary interests yes. and applied them to the Beatles, to Absolutely. pop music. Yeah, and which must have made you fairly rare at the time. No, because Bob Dylan. What did Bob Dylan? He was an English major. He was, you know, where did his name come from? Dylan Thomas. He went to the University of Minnesota. He was, he was exactly the same. Son of a hardware store owner. Yeah. Jewish, you know, although at the time this was not part of his shtick. He went through a brief period with a yarmulke, but basically he, it was just, you know, uh, but, uh, but I mean there was a, an intellectual, uh, definitely an intellectual element from the very start with him and the Beatles too in a more subtle way. I was just going to mention this thing you wrote yeah. about Dylan, which I thought was so good. You said at the time Dylan, uh, people repurposed him as Keats in Buckskin. Well, this is, uh, this is the, your British critic, what's his name, who wrote, I could actually stop a door with his book, Dylan's Sense of Sin. You may know this, I don't know, maybe not. And, you know, it's a giant seven or eight hundred word page, uh, uh, a study of Dylan as a poet. Oh, he uses feminine endings, wow. Well, of course it's an upbeat. Of course he uses feminine endings, it's just an upbeat. Very, very typical in pop music. And I don't think yeah. that literary critics are the best an- analysts of Dylan. Music critics are much better. Absolutely. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. Y- yeah, the lyrics are music. They have to fit the music. Now, you s- so you start writing um, yeah. for... This is one of the first police- this pieces is the you first, write. This is the first this piece. This is a gig. I don't yeah. know if everybody can read this here. So yeah. this is, a, this is a, a bit of a special gig. 1966, right. June, Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yeah. Beach Boys, Ray Charles, right. The Birds, special guests, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder, Jerry Butler, The McCoys, Marvelettes, The Gentries, The Cowsills. <laughs> Not The Who, I don't think. No, 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 they didn't exist. I don't think they were around. That is a fantastic so, yeah. give, give us a, Give us a picture of that. You went along to this and, and wrote about it. Yeah, I went to the Village Voice. I said, oh, I want to be a rock critic. And they said, what is that? <laughs> this truly is what the editor said. And I said, I don't know. Actually, I didn't. And they said, well, you know, try something. So I went to this concert. And the Yankee Stadium has 65,000 seats. And uh, I wrote it mostly about the fans screaming and yelling and jumping on the field and being tackled by police and fighting with each other and all of that and handed the article in. And, uh, and it, you know, it appeared in the paper with this strange picture of myself right out of the Bronx. And uh, that's how it started. And this was really was an ideal. Any rock critic would have died to cover this concert. But also, it's great credit to the Village Voice that they allowed you to do that. I well, mean, yeah, there was a... It, more then, conventional press would have... Would have that's why... Quite so yeah, I had a journalism degree, and I went to The Voice instead of getting a job because it was the only place, the only place I could write in a literary way about this music that I loved. But you could also write about more than just the music, couldn't you? You could yeah. write about the setup and the, the amb- drama and the people and the ambience, the theatre and yeah. all that. Because I knew the world of fans. I was a fan, so yeah. I knew the world of rock fans. Now this, yeah, this is this is right out of the Bronx. Okay, you see, this is a secret. This is a halfpenny. Oh, what? An- from my first trip to London, and I cherished it. And that's what I'm wearing around my neck. That's a halfpenny. It is. It is a genuine. It is a genuine halfpenny. It's a souvenir of it, London. It is. It's, I cherished it and kept it and wore it. <laughs> That's so there you go. I mean, I had no idea how to pose or anything. Obviously, I said is I was. That your mugshot. If now you believe I really was a nerd, I mean, look at this. It's amazing. So this how is, old were you then? Twenty-two. Right, right. This is my Beatle haircut from Liverpool, which I <laughs> got and went and I asked for, and the barber said, "What is that?" <laughs> I. I 
gave me that haircut, and uh, you know, Did you take a picture of Paul McCartney in with and <laughs> said, "I want to look like this." That- I mean, no, I just you know, it was. I went to Liverpool. I went to the Cavern Club. There was nothing but posters there. 1965. It was already over, basically. So you went to a hairdresser in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was in America. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. In the real thing. You know, oh, really? Authentic a, imported haircut. Yes, met a dock worker. Did opium with the dock worker. Do not remember the rest of the evening at all. <laughs> Plugged in my electric razor the next day and it blew because the current, you know. That, uh, so those are my experiences of England. Trucks roaming the streets looking for illegal televisions. Hey, three oh. pence, three pence coins in the in the hot water heater to get hot water. I, I was very impressed. <laughs> so it was, it was more basic than the Bronx, was it? It yeah. was. Uh, it was. It was. It was basic in a different way. Right. 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 The Bronx had free hot water. <laughs> <laughs> so give us an idea of the village voice at the uh, time yes, for, well, for uh, people who don't yeah, know. You know I, don't, I don't know how we can imagine. It kind of was like the Huffington Post in a way. I mean, a little more selective, but not by much. And there was a tremendous amount of room in the paper. Uh, articles jumped back and forwards. Uh, you know, these, there's no layout to speak of. There was no editing. They basically proofread your articles on the way to the printer. And so you had... You know, if you made an error, if you made an awkward phrase, you could have was like sort of dribbling on your pants, basically. It was very embarrassing. There's nobody to, to save you from that. So were there any legal actions? Well, were you we, sued? Not me, but we did once publish a recipe for sweet and sour cat. And uh, <laughs> it's true that the Chinese Restaurant Association sued us. And we did once call someone half a motherfucker, and he turned out to be a midget. So he sued us. Two persons. Those were the two that I remember. Full motherfucker. It was a very, uh, it, it was a very sort of raunchy, delightful, low-paying scene. Twenty dollars an article. Okay, that's what I got. Twenty dollars. I lived on tuna fish from my parents. Um, and your column was called Pop Eye. Pop Eye. Right. Pun intended. Which, which you claim at one point, but, but John Lennon mentions your yes. the Popeye column. It's in Give Peace a Chance. Give Peace, what, what's the exact It's in his rabbis and Popeyes. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. But it took off straight away, doesn't it? It, was, it, it became a popular yeah. part of the paper. Yeah, well, unbeknownst to me, rock and roll was becoming very hip, and I, I had no idea that anyone was reading me. So I had no idea about this process. And suddenly, uh, you know, we got record ads and everything just exploded from there. I mean, this picture, you know, we got letters saying, oh, great, a 12-year-old rock critic, how clever. (laughs) And he said, pedophiles wrote me. Um, But but eventually this, this, you know, intellectuals, you know, from this early, from this, this is 1966, intellectuals began to glom on to rock and roll and and I was the only person there who you know could begin to explain these people had been raised on jazz they did not understand rock and roll it's a music of repetition it's not a music of development so the values are totally different but I grew up on this music of repetition and I could explain it so you got yourself a name. You're you're well known in New York circles, right? You? Yeah, and to the extent I think when you you bump into Bob Dylan, he's heard of you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I I was unable to speak, <laughs> but he said, "I know you. We should yeah. talk." Yeah, but I I I you know I was in a state of complete and utter awe around rock musicians. 
complete. I mean, I could barely get three questions into the interview, which was fine because they just went on and on. <laughs> tell, tell them about the time you misheard the lyric of "All Along the Watchtower." Does, oh yes, two riders. Yes, yes, two riders were approaching, and the wind began to howl. I thought the word was "riders." and said that it was obviously a reference to Dylan and Allen Ginsberg. And uh, he thought that was pretty funny. But, you know, there were, no, there were lyrics on the back of these albums, but I had a press copy, no lyrics. So I made, I made a couple of really, really choice blunders. One was calling the first Doors album remarkable, except for one week cut, Light My Fire. <laughs> you know... I, I did make some incredible bloopers. Uh, <laughs> you, one, of, one of your first kind of um, meetings with yeah, the yes. stars, this is the famous occasion where I think the Rolling Stones' yeah. first appearance, in first time they turn up in New York. Yeah, but isn't that Linda? That's Linda McCartney. Yeah. So she was a friend of mine when she was Linda so Eastman. Tell, yeah, so you yeah. tell us about her. Well, she was a wonderful person. She was like a legendary groupie in New York City. A groupie, do you know the word? It's, it's a courtesan. Let's say it's a rock courtesan. And uh, British musicians coming through New York, you know, everyone wanted to meet her. So she got me my first interviews with British musicians because they didn't know from the Village Voice at all or me. So uh, she would be setting up her cameras and I, I would come in there, you know, and, and they didn't want to talk to me, but she would insist, talk to him. And they, they did. And they were like, I had to distract them from preening for her. And, uh, and then I would leave. That's it. I never knew what happened afterwards. But, you know, I could but there easily was, imagine. There was no normal setup where the PR introduced you to them. And no, then, no, 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 no. No Because press you talk about the, yeah. here, you, you, yeah. it's, it's Charlie, isn't it? Who says, so yeah. come, come through here kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, they were on a yacht because no hotel would put them up because of the girls. And so, uh, yeah, I went to this event on this yacht, and Charlie Watts, you know, took mercy on me. I was in completely speechless, and terrified and, and awestruck, you know. And he said, don't, don't be nervous, just ask questions. Go ahead, you know. And then he got me into their limo. He sort of smuggled me into their limo. And they, was, went through, they were in an underground garage under the yacht basin. And uh, the garage was invaded by girls. I mean, there were... The racket was astonishing, and they basically plucked Brian Jones uh, out of the car and started ripping at his clothing. I had never seen... There was was lipstick on the windows, and and they were splayed across the whole windshield and everything. And, you know, I was astonished and moved by this. All of that presumably finished up with the piece. Yeah, 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 yes, of course. I mean, he had to be rescued by police. To, because he was really being ripped at, but they were very blood. They had were very used to this. They were did armored you, and blase. Did, 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 they didn't find it frightening. Did you find it frightening? I found it moving. Right, moving because ecstasy, moving? ecstasy, female ecstasy, that was forbidden. And how else can this be expressed? If you did it in real life, you were a slut. But in rock and roll, you could express these desires that you couldn't really act out. Now times have changed quite a bit, but in those days, you couldn't really act it out except through these idolatrous outbursts. And so I thought, very moving. I wish I could do that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I, I think this may be one of your other faux pas. Uh, this <laughs> is very, very sweet of you to, to be so honest about it. This is Sergeant Pepper. Life and life only, as Bob Dylan says. <laughs> Did you, you describe the record as reeking of special effects, oh, yes. dazzling, but ultimately fraudulent. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, no, no. 
I, 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 there are uh, people who think I was right because it's not gut bucket rock. It's not classic R&B. It's not even rock at all, actually. That's your frame of reference. Then yeah, you probably if you were, were going right, to be a purist, <laughs> if you were going to be a purist about this, then the record doesn't work. Uh, you know, I, th- I think I was wrong, of course, but uh, I felt what I felt. Also, my, one of my speakers had blown out. And, uh, and, uh, so I didn't You're only hear, hearing half of it. I, didn't, I did not hear the bass lines. So, you know... And, uh, the glorious point that they made, the, anyway. Well, no, it, uh, but I mean, there were no earphones. You put your head between the speakers and turned up the volume to maximum. That, that's how you listened but to actually, music. But actually, hearing it for the first time, and probably yeah. only once or whatever, you had the, the interesting yeah. thing about that record of many is right. that every single song is completely different. I mean, people it was were a, used to yeah. the idea that you just produced a, some continuity. I yeah. mean, every single song is, is it's unlike a, the one that came before it. It was a new form. Okay, the term concept album didn't exist. And I don't think I knew how to rate it at all or judge it. I mean, it's very hard for a critic to say, I don't understand how to talk about this. It's so new that I can't find the terms to judge it. Uh, no critic will ever admit that, as far no. as I know. I didn't, certainly, at the age of 24 or whenever. whenever uh, also, you, you, yeah. you, you fear that you may be talking about an insignificant record as well. I mean, I it, love... If it's Sergeant Pepper, it's all right to say anything about it, really, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I love... Because the, we're still talking about it. Yeah, of course. It's a, it, is, it, is it could a have been seminal, the Dave Clark Five, and we're not talking not, about I'm, it. Well, yes, I would think not. <laughs> you know, ferry Cross the Mersey? I don't think so. But, uh, you know, this is a seminal work of postmodernism. This is a... A it's very any, significant work of art. If it's uh, any consolation, I think Norman mentioned uh, earlier that uh, somebody wrote a review of Sergeant Pepper saying that the Beatles have run out of ideas. They've used one track twice. Just <laughs> starts and ends. <laughs> that's, how, so, that's how bad it got. So this was in the New York Times, okay? They had uh, assigned me to do this, and the editor said to me, we, got, we haven't gotten so much negative mail since we criticized the Bible. <laughs> you have three big boxes of letters that I had to deal with. Oh, so that was for the New York Times, you yeah, remember? Yeah, that's right. Remember. Now, yeah. so you're, you're obviously based in New York, but yeah. 1966, 67, things are clearly starting to happen on the West Coast, which right. you, and nobody's talked about for right. quite a long time. Yeah. So you go out there. Yes, I go out as an uptight New Yorker, <laughs> and, and known as such. Either that or I was accused of being a narc, a narcotics officer, okay? And, uh, what were you wearing at the time? This girl here on the left of this picture looks like she's come from a, from a cosmopolitan, uh, a Vogue, Vogue fashion uh, picture from two weeks ago. Picture. But what I mean, were you wearing? Because you talk uh, about a complete change where you decided yeah. to dress as a rocker. You wear silver yeah. trousers and silver boots. And, right. I mean, was, was that right? Moiré trousers. Moiré trousers. Uh, silver boots and a cape. Fantastic. That's uh, fantastic. A velvet cape. Uh, with with little embroidered stars, yes. That's like having a badge saying rock critic. <laughs> well, I thought so. <laughs> Richard says at one point, I was a dork in disguise. I, I was. A, I was. I was. A, I was a, a, a you know a, a drag queen as a rock critic, something, uh, but a rock drag basically. No, I mean I tried to look like these people, uh, but I was much more uptight than they were, and I was still, you know, a rationalist trying to figure out: is this the revolution of eighteen forty eight? Is this American transcendentalism come home to roost? What is this theoretically? And they were taking acid. So 
there was that's, a... that's such a good point because the book's so much about not just the music, but you're constantly trying to evaluate what's going on, and you're and you're fascinated by the idea of revolution. Yes, you're looking for the revolutionary verve in everything around you. And, well, and, you and, know, and, 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 and can identify the moment which we'll come on to in a minute, actually, when, when the revolution ends. But why why were you so interested in that? Because most people were looking at it very much at face value. They weren't trying to make sense of it. Well, first of all, to escape from yourself. Rock and roll, the ecstasy of rock music is one way to escape from yourself. That's, I found that. That was part of its allure to me. The other was the war in Vietnam. Okay, you were in college. Uh, either when you graduated, you could be killed. Uh, or your boyfriend could be killed. And uh, then you discovered that the university was doing research for the government to devising weapons that could kill you. So your own university was helping to kill you. So how could you not actually think there should be some kind of revolution? This is, you know, completely irrational. Rational governments thinking they were rational, that were irrational and patriarchal in the extreme. It's such a good point because the British equivalent of that was totally different. We didn't have those kind of pressures at all. Absolutely not. It's an entirely different context. Yeah. This is a a, a wonderful picture of um, a load of the classic San Francisco... Mm. Groups together. I want. I want to. I want to bring this in because Bob Weir's in this picture, and you talk about. Mm. You talk in the in the book about your um your kind of emerging recognition the, of your sexuality. Right. Yeah. Bob, Bob Which, Weir is at the yeah. centre. And, and Bob Weir is. So I, I, I crushes on two of these people. <laughs> One of them was Janis Joplin. Is it, I think that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it, and yeah. the other was Bob Weir. They. There's kind of a similarity. (laughs) He represented to me the less locked and loaded kind of masculinity that was emerging from the hippie scene, uh, which is entirely different than what I was used to, and much less macho. Now, he is buffed up quite a bit after the 60s, and he becomes very butch. But in those days, he looked like a giant willow tree to me. And, you know, I was very taken with him. And then Janis Joplin and I became friends. So, but, but, but nobody at the time was kind of out gay in the music scene. Was that, was that fair to say? There were a number of early rock critics who were bisexual, but not in their writing. Right. Uh, but I know of two or three. Right. Not all of them. But, but musicians, no. nobody no. was talking about it in their no. interviews or anything like that. No, no, it, it never. Was, it, uh, I mean, so yeah. all, it was the age of the Aquarian age yeah. or whatever, but well, it didn't uh, include that. I was a married man. Uh, I, I didn't think of myself as gay in those days. And uh, no, there was a California expression called a gay-off. A gay-off meaning an experience. It, it wasn't considered an identity that hippies would cultivate, but the act itself happened quite a bit, actually, and any combination was possible, any combination you could imagine, as long as it wasn't coercive and your mood rings agreed. <laughs> so, karmically bound. This was great. If, if you are my height, if you are my height, having the mood ring as a criterion, this was really a great opportunity. No. So karmically related. And so tell us about Janis Joplin. Yeah. You, you, you struck up you know, a good yeah. relationship with Janis Joplin. So we were both so full of self-doubt, I think, and it was so close to the surface, and we were both bisexual. So I think these were the, although we never, this isn't something we talked about, but I think those are the bases of bonding. And we did bond, I think. I met her before she was famous. 
just, uh, you know, uh, meeting a typical San Francisco band that happened to be hers. And then I saw her at Monterey. I was on my honeymoon, actually. And I went to Monterey Pop. I, I know it's true. And, uh, and, uh, and I, you know, when I saw her at Monterey, I knew immediately she would be major. And then I got a call from the bass player, I think, the, the guy in the back. Maybe that's the rhythm guitarist. I don't know. Anyway, saying, we're going to do our first Northeastern tour. We, you want to come along with us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then no agent, no press pass necessary. I just tagged along with the band and watched her perform, and I, I did a long interview with her. And then I saw her in New York City. If she'd come through New York, I would, uh, you know, spend time with her. When, when you said she's... It's hard to imagine her being full of self-doubt. No. When you, when you watch her, uh, no. which were a lot, actually beautiful um, yeah. uh, bits of footage on YouTube. But where did that no. come from? It's hard. Just hard it came to from out. growing up as a sexual being in Texas it, when she did, and being the town slut of Port Arthur. That's where it came from, very simply. She hated her hair. She was totally self-conscious about her hair, even though millions of women imitated it, young women. And, uh, no, I think it's evident. And if you hear ball and chain, what is that about? It's about frustration and doubt. Why is love like a ball and chain? And, you know... You talk about the going on stage. It's a wonderful bit. Yeah. We're standing on the side of the stage watching her go on and preparing to go on. And she obviously threw herself into each performance. There was no such thing as a routine night. You no. do the show and go back to the hotel. But, she yeah. said there's something like um, these songs had, had holes in them that yes. she had to fill. She had, it was really fascinating, actually. Yeah. Really unusual. And she was drunk. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but we'll drink more or, or less. Before she went on, she drank So she could function while drunk. Oh, yeah. Well, never more than a pint and a half, as she told me. And always... Uh, never, never on the rocks, because it's bad for my throat. <laughs> she said, honestly... So a pint and know. a half of... Yeah, imagine uh, Southern Comfort, low proof, but still, yeah, a nice Jewish boy is watching this. I've never seen Soft anything drink, like it. Southern Comfort. Yeah, I, mean, I, I should say, you know, twenty-five percent. No, yes, it is right. It's it's low proof, but actually, here, I guess drinking was de rigueur. But in 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 San Francisco, nobody would talk about that. It was all drugs. Yeah, yeah, all drugs. So marijuana, acid, you know, no heroin. London was very different. Uh, Jumping about a bit, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I just wanted spectrum. to mention yeah. this because, well, following, we, we talked yeah. about Tina, I can Tina Turner yeah, with, yeah. with Norman. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you, were at a, you were at a session, were you, with yeah. Phil Spector oh, and I can Tina? In LA, Which, yeah. What were they doing? What was the song? Ripper Tea? Yeah, he was basically sampling her live. I mean, in other words, he'd have her do the same phrase or two over and over and over again. I was there for about five hours, and I never heard the bridge of the song, River Deep Mountain High. So you were there when they recorded yeah. River Deep Mountain High. Yeah, she was it's sitting there. It's the Gold there, Star Studios or whatever it is. Very bashful, as, as Norman said. I mean, you know, she was a very, very bashful person. But you didn't um, see it as a... As a performance, did you? You were saying she, he, she just recorded clusters of notes that he made, yeah. that made a re-record, re-record, and then four months, it, which four is the months. modern, the modern recording technique. So it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, he, 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 he is the modern recording technique. Yeah, I mean, he's true, the great, true. the greatest producer probably in rock and roll, and um, you know, yeah, it sort of made her a star. But she had talked about having to sing the song half a million times, and it's only a slight exaggeration, I think. <laughs> Uh, it is a great song. It was never a hit, and he he didn't make another record. It was record. here, but it, it was yeah, of course, absolutely. So it was like a Rolling Stone a hit here, way before America, and it, I heard it here first and was a, very impressed. So did you? 
At the time, when you, well, yeah. you, you obviously didn't hear enough of the song to say. You didn't think, that's a hit. No, I never heard it until it came out, and then I thought it was a masterpiece. Right, right, right. But, you know, he withdrew from the music business for several years, I think, after this song flopped. It isn't The Righteous Brothers. It's a much more complex. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really a masterpiece, I think. The, the, the Doors. doors. Yeah. There is, actually, if you search on YouTube, <laughs> there is a clip of Richard... Interviewing the Doors. Oh, I've seen that. On television. On television. Yes, on speed. Me. (laughs) Because I was terrified of television. So I I was on speed. And and I I can't account for the flowered shirt that I wore either. Sensational paper shirt. (laughs) Really. So how did you find find Jim Morrison? Very intelligent. Extremely intelligent. Perceptive. He said in the future, rock would be made by one person and a machine. Which is a remarkable statement. It's electronica. I mean, uh, very sort of deliberate strategies as an artist, borrowed from beat poetry, from method acting, went to film school, and, uh, and uh, you know, all of these, uh, and shamanism. You know, he had read up a couple of books on shamanism and decided he was a shaman. And uh, he was very, very serious about this, also very fragile and an alcoholic. So I watched him record Dead Drunk once, I watched uh, as he was put into a recording booth, a glass recording booth, and they turned off the sound because it was unrecordable, you know, and the band was trying to play around him. That's why they sound so live, because they played together in the studio. And they just turned off the sound. It was like watching a silent movie of him. It was very, very poignant. Um, and he really was you know, a, a mess, but I found him to be very gentle, and very vulnerable, and many of these people, like Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, equally vulnerable, had very strong women uh, in their lives. Very, very strong and grounded women. But this was you spent industry. a day with Brian Wilson, didn't you? In the desert? Yeah. Well, several. Yeah. Also in his teepee in Bel Air. <laughs> There's a great bit where you go driving with Dennis Wilson. And yes. He says something he really drove... chilling, like this road is doing weird things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, it's true. He was, he was on acid. I don't, I don't think I had done acid yet, but I was certainly high, and we all were high. And uh, he did say the road is doing these weird things. Whoa. And I think I said, I thought, you know, if, if I survive, I promise never to do drugs again. I, it, it was, uh, yeah, they were, they were stoners. But look, when they were stoners, they became, he became a composer of angelic, threnotic music. And he never quite did the Teenage Symphony to God, but he, they were, these were angelic records, very, very, ex, quite extraordinary music. Um, and I, I thought, this is a great creative artist who can't get it together, and so will never really realize himself. But he has moments of remarkable pellucidity. And, and this uh, is an industry admired. that allows Jim Morrison and... Janis Joplin to, to develop the way they developed and doesn't appear to help them. In your no, Nobody, the, nobody's, I mean, if anything, they're encouraging right. them. The industry become will, these high priests of kind of... Um, yeah, the, uh, in, a, in a right... destruction Yes, in a right of fucked upness. Yeah. But uh, the industry will allow anything, right? It will allow anything. As long as the profit is there, anything is possible. So, so talking of which, is that one of the things that you kind of noticed at Monterey, that, uh, you know, mm. that the industry was starting to... Yeah, get, get interested in what it could do with. Yes, they all showed up. People. The new aristocracy, the crypto hipsters, were all there, and I was in the front row. Um, my my colleague Robert Criscow, another rock critic of great renown, I think, uh, caught Jimi Hendrix's guitar when he set it on fire. He made a World Series catch. 
grabbed the remnant of the guitar, uh, which he kept, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a tremendous event. But to, to think that Ravi Shankar got a standing ovation for tuning up it made me realize that actually these people didn't know anything. <laughs> they, they were, yes. So were you starting to get disillusioned then? Yes. Right. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, the industrialization of rock music was so quick and the stylization set in so rapidly that I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't find the words to, uh, to praise it anymore. And I just railed against what we called hype in those days, promotion. There's a bit in 1968, <clears throat> sorry, going back yeah. very slightly, uh, where you talk about MacArthur Park. And you say that MacArthur Park is the, is the, uh, signifies the end of the revolution. Well, you know, uh, you right. feel that that's the, that's somehow a, a nail in the coffin of, of the. I rock mean, music why being, was that? Being lovers caught, you know, like being sort of on a table like a striped pair of pants. Striped is not a word, but this is art, so we're going to give it two syllables. And yes, a seven-minute banal composition of icing melting in the rain. Uh, the real connections between Dylan and French symbolist poetry, for instance, the connection with Rambeau, which is very evident. Mr. Tambourine Man. Yes, yeah. of course. It's, it's the drunken boat. And, uh, and, and also Allen Ginsberg, of course. These are real connections. But by the time of MacArthur Park, there was no signification whatsoever. It was just imagery thrown together, you know, uh, as, as if sort of blobs on a canvas. And so I hated it, really hated it. So this music has a kind of uh, another purpose beyond entertainment. You, you're, you, you're less oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a hybrid. 60s art is hybrid. Hybridity is the key. So it's a combination of high and low forms shattering the aesthetic hierarchies that differentiate high and low and mixing them willfully. This is postmodernism, which begins in the 60s, not named until the 70s. But it begins in the 60s. That's precisely the point you made about Bob Dylan when you saw him in 1963, that he's using high art images and low art images. Yeah, because he's educated, state university system. He doesn't have the elite knowledge of the arts, but he does have the the basic education and the desire to be creative. So he puts it together. It's like a teenager eating everything he can get down his gullet, and he's capable of digesting it all. And that's what he did. And, And yes, the key to the whole thing, even my journalism, is hybridity. So meanwhile, while it's all getting very florid on the West Coast, yes, on the East Coast, it's you've got Andy all Warhol. this happening, Andy Warhol and Velvet right. Underground, which you spend a bit of time yeah. at the factory. And what do yeah, you yeah. make of Warhol? Uh, Warhol was a working class guy, uh, son of immigrant parents from uh, some strange Slovakian, it's not even a state, it's, it's a minority religion somewhere. And uh, mother barely spoke English, father wasn't, had died. And, um, you know, I, I saw him as a working-class guy who loved to make art because it, it allowed him, too, like me, to escape. And I never got an attitude from him at all because he related differently to working-class people than he did to, uh, you know, countesses and w- w- who were all around him. And then and he would put them on. But with working-class people like Jean-Michel Basquiat, the painter, he was very, uh, very, very sort of ordinary. He would take me around and say, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Silk screen is so interesting. It's, it's the potential is, look, this is the, billo, the Brillo box. You know, I love doing this. And then, of course, the people all around him were horrifying. <laughs> absolutely, the narcissism was, you know, Which absolutely people extraordinary. Specifically? 
Huh? Which people specifically? I mean, all of them, really. I mean, I... I, I, I so all the people in Walk on the Wild Side? So yeah. Candy, who are the Candy Darling, all those people? You mean the drag queens were the nicest yeah. people in the entourage by far. Absolutely by far. Because in those days, transsexuals, tran- transgendered people uh, had a sense of failure about them, which they don't today. RuPaul, <laughs> I mean, RuPaul is not Candy Darling. You know, there's no, uh, there's no doubt with RuPaul that it, she's a success. But with Candy Darling, there's a sense of failure. It's really patent. So again, I responded to doubt. And the Velvet Underground? Yeah, the Velvet Underground, I knew them as the primitives before they were famous because, frankly, Lou Reed knocked up a friend of mine, so I got an interview. And we <laughs> helped the way her, it works. <laughs> we helped her do it. We helped her get rid of the, fe- of the child, of the fetus. And it was an illegal act, of course, in those days. And, you know, so we, we, I got the interview with him and met him, and he had no attitude. He was an outer, another kid who looked at Manhattan from across a river and wanted a way in that wasn't compromising. And so I think I, that's how I related to him. And then I was astonished to see the Velvet Underground when I went to Warhol's discotheque, and they had been renamed with this Euro trash singer, Nico. I once described her as sounding... Yes, well, she was, which she really was. I described her as sounding like a moose in heat, you know. And, uh, Did she read that? Huh? Yeah, she, she, her, her son kicked me. Actually, she sent her son to kick you. It was her son <laughs> a small boy or a... no? He was little. I think he was the son of her and Alain Delon. I'm I'm pretty sure that actually that's the provenance of this child. That he was an evil mini Nico. <laughs> so, is everybody keeping up with this? She's quite tangled, isn't it? <laughs> quite oh, complicated yeah, yeah. world. You want to know Happy about the days. 60s? You know, Different times. This is what the 60s really. So this. This is, uh, this is a picture taken, uh, I think, ah, yes. in Chicago uh, Democratic yeah, yeah. Convention in 1968, uh-huh. which is obviously a huge watershed moment. Is that yeah. when you kind of no, lose I mean, faith in the alternative society? No, I mean, it started before then. But I, I covered the Columbia University the student uprising. I mean, hundreds of colleges and universities were shut down. This, of course, what happened in Paris was incredibly influential. You know, I had collected those French posts, the Situationist stuff and the Guy Debord stuff. I collected all that. And then uh, Columbia was very violent. Hundreds of students were dragged by the hair out of dormitories by the police. And I witnessed this with the safety of my press card protecting me. I jumped out of a second-story dormitory window to get away from the police. And uh, I had these experiences. And then it all culminated at the Democratic party convention in Chicago where Hubert Humphrey was nominated another cowardly liberal who couldn't bring it upon himself to oppose the war in Vietnam so we decided to unseat him and so 25,000 you know kids descended on the city and caused a riot and uh, we did unseat him he did lose finally uh, and it was unbelievably uh, nasty. I mean, I, I w- was in the middle of a crowd shoved through the windows of, hotel, of a hotel downtown, and I was shot at by a policeman who, you know, either missed me or fired a blank. I don't know. But I remember all of my hair standing up when that happened. It was a very dramatic situation. And then when the cameras came on, the spontaneous chant, the whole world is watching, that nobody planned to say that, but... It just happened, and everybody... There was a split screen, Hubert Humphrey on one side and the riot on the other. And this was, I think, really was a a watershed moment in all of American history when we realized that 
the country could fall apart. There was a British poster from British Airways, and it said, See America while it lasts. <laughs> I remember this and thinking, yeah, this is pretty terrifying. Of course, the whole world's watching became a track on the Chicago album, didn't it? I guess I don't. I, you tell me. You tell me. Everything, yeah. It all became. Yeah. It all became merchandise. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, late nineteen seventy, yeah. I think. Right. Um, Janis Joplin dies. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I didn't know about the heroin habit. You found a, found a newspaper on the, yeah. on the beach or something, didn't you? Yeah. There was no, no radios and television where you were. And... No, right. I was on Fire Island, which doesn't have cars, and so there was no media, and I just saw this paper lying on the sand announcing this. And, uh, you know, it was a devastating uh, uh, blow to me, and it caused me to have a writing block, so I stopped. And that, that really was the moment when I, I realized I couldn't write about music anymore. And I was incapable of even producing a paragraph for quite a while after that. So it was profoundly Why injurious. Then? Was that just the, the personal relationship with her or something bigger than that? Was it, was no, it was bigger. Yeah. I, and there's the whole schmear, as we would say, you know, the whole gestalt, uh, everything falling apart, the country being in, a, in an incredibly fragile situation. It was absolutely terrifying. Imagine, you think your country is really going to fall apart, and then what? Who takes its place? There were a lot of really horrific right-wingers in the military. We really worried about a coup. I mean, it was a real worry of ours. And, uh, and then if the left won, my God, these people are crazy. What, what would happen? I mean, it, 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 one can only imagine a disaster. So it was all extremely disturbing, and yeah, I so had to since withdraw. Then, yeah. Since then, you you spend your time in what academia, or is that you teach? I do teach. I teach at Hunter College as part of the City University. I teach a course in the sixties. I write. I write books. Do you do you ever yeah, when you're talking to students? You know, yeah. you're talking about the oh of, yeah the latest album, whatever it is. Yeah. Do you ever say? Do you know I was the first rock critic? No, they all know that. They Google me. They know everything. They oh, know right. more about me than I do. <laughs> but, but uh, no, I'll tell you something. The, the difference is they have to struggle to have a career. I didn't. They cannot invent a role. The economy is harsh and unwelcoming for them. I grew up in a time of an expansioning, expansionist economy where anything was possible and I could live on very little money. They, are, they do not have the privileges that I had. And I have a sense of survivor guilt because of that. So I have tremendous empathy for them. And I really regret that they have such a rough time. There's the book. Yeah. Another little piece of my heart. It's up front. It's out front. Which I'm sure Richard would <laughs> be very happy to sign copies. It'll be bought and, and signed. Would you please thank... Richard Goldstein. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.